in our first year, we did a few hundred thousand dollars in like orders, you know, which if you're a tech company and you did that in orders, you'd be really super successful, yeah. right? So you're already I was, being yeah. millionaire. Yeah. <laughs> so that was, um, we took orders in no time. I would say that it's quite funny. So as a female founder, um, even in fashion, um, if you're saying about like, can they be considered founders? Well, hello, hello. It's DeAndre here and welcome to The Pioneer Show, the show where we talk with innovators, makers, entrepreneurs, basically people who are trailing their own trails and creating their own lives so that we all can learn how to work on our own lives. This is episode 12 and I'm your host, Andre Dialbkerk. You can find me at It's DeAndre on Twitter and on Instagram, as well as the show at Pioneer's Show on Instagram as well. In this week's episode, we have with us Sarah Amadi, the CEO of a very interesting fashion tech startup, Shopist. Actually, I'll call it tech fashion. You will figure it out along the conversation. We talk about Sarah's traveling and experiences working in different countries, her former career as a fashion designer, and a lot of things about being a non-technical founder. I really, really had a great time talking with Sarah, and I hope you have a chance to get to know her as well. So... Without any further ado, let's welcome into the show, Sarah Amadi. Hello, Sarah. How are you? I'm great, thank you. And you? It's a little bit hot here in Berlin. All good. Thank it's you Sarah, very much. It's Sarah, by the way. Hmm? Sarah. Sarah, sorry. No, you're okay. But it, uh, Sarah would be with an age in the end, right? Um, my dad's family are from Iran, so it's definitely Sarah. Ah, okay. Yeah. Sorry. It's sorry for that. No Sarah. worries. That's actually the way you say it in Portugal. Sarah. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's the way people say it in practically all of the world, apart from the US and UK. Probably, yeah. And yeah. then almost everybody hears those names from the US and the UK. So it's Sarah, Sarah, but it's Sarah. Yeah. Okay, Sarah, thank you very much for being here on the Pioneers Show. It's a lovely pleasure to have you here. Thank you very much for taking the time. Thank you for having me. So for people back at home who don't know who you are, care to give us a three-minute pitch about yourself? A three-minute pitch? Three-minute pitch. Um, my background? Or sure. Where do you want me to Talk start? about yourself. Let's. Yeah, so um, I was born in Manchester, England. I stayed there until I was 18, and then I moved to London. Um, I moved to London to go to Central St. Martins to study fashion design with knitwear. I did that for a... I was there for four years, and then I moved to the States, came as a designer came back to London, worked in London for a while. Then I moved to Abu Dhabi temporarily. Then I moved to San Diego. <laughs> then I moved to Boston. <laughs> then I moved back to New York where I stayed for a while. Then to Dubai, Abu Dhabi, to Phoenix, and then I came back to London. So you clearly traveled a lot. Yes, I would say I've traveled a lot. Um, I've lived in some very hot places and some very cold places. Well, what would be the coldest places you've ever lived? Probably Boston. Boston. Yeah. yeah, I mean, like when I lived in Boston, it started snowing in November. There was a blizzard just after Thanksgiving. And outside the apartment I was living, somebody put their bag, sorry, their bag, their bike on the railings. Mm -hmm. And they didn't get their bike again until May. So the blizzard just completely went. Um, the way they plow the snow, there's probably, I'm trying to think in metrics, probably a two and a half meter snow wall. So when I was what? walking to really? work, yeah, it was gross, you know, black sludgy cigarette butts, you uh, know. It was, it was what it was. Well, to be honest, I only saw snow when I came here to Berlin in January. So yeah, yeah. I, I can say that I've been privileged enough that I'd never had 
to encounter that cold. Yeah, we don't get much snow in England. It's kind of sludge. Really? It's more of a rainy... It just doesn't settle. Not in London or Manchester. It just kind of... It comes, you might get a couple of inches, and that's it. Yeah, in Portugal, you have none of that. Probably, <laughs> probably in the high mountains, but you don't see any of that. Okay, so you're, you moved around a lot, and this is actually something that I wanted to eventually touch now the line, but since we have it here, you've encountered a lot of different, let's say, cultures. Yeah. The U.S. is quite big, but you've also been in England, different parts of England, Dubai, and this is actually something that I think my girlfriend would kill me if I didn't ask. As a woman, and uh, you were doing fashion design in all these areas? No, actually. So in New York, I major like the majority of the time mm -hmm. before I thought of going into tech and mm -hmm. being, a, you know, a founder. I was a designer. So in New York, primarily design. Mm -hmm. In London, a lot of the time, design. When I was working in the UAE, I was working in marketing. So I work for a marketing company that work with like Abu Dhabi in um, Islamic Bank and mm -hmm. NatWest and a lot of different institutions. So um, I was primarily marketing there. Okay. I also worked in like a wearable tech show. I worked with the Dubai Design District, but it was all about like marketing and events rather than actual anything to do directly with fashion. So how was the, okay, then before going on around the world part, how was the transition from the design part of fashion, but very design, very creative focused, probably to a more analytical, I assume? Or you were used to still very working on a creative part? I was still more on the communications and creative part. Um, mm -hmm. I wasn't really on the research or you know heavily into the strategy. Mm -hmm. um, it was definitely different, but you find that in design anyway, that um, you know, unless you're doing like, a avant-garde collection, a lot of it's to do with research as it is. Mm -hmm. You have to know who you're designing for, what sells very well. There's parts of design that people don't really understand or appreciate, mm -hmm. that you don't design just what you want to design. You rarely do that if you're designing for a company. You have to design on what sells in previous season, who your customer is, their price points, the fabrics that they like. So there is a ton of research that goes into design. Mm -hmm that um, isn't seen. You only really see these pretty sketches that designers don't do anyway. <laughs> like, they don't? They don't, you rarely do fashion illustrations. You know, if you do a fashion illustration, it will be for yourself, right? Oh, really? Or you'll use it for marketing purposes. If you do flats and like um, tech packs, I mean, if you send an illustration to a factory, you'll get something completely different back. And it's quite precise, you have to know, for example, the T-shirt you're wearing right now, you know, the measurements, the type of stitch, mm -hmm. you know, the weight and everything else, it's quite specific. So that is really what design's about. Most of it's actually done on computer programs anyway. So basically, am I correct to assume that most of fashion designing, it's actually almost of an engineering thing, uh, engineering the exact building, creating of clothes or accessories? Yeah. And you work in quite big teams a lot of the time. Um, but there are huge, you know, like specifications mm -hmm. that you have to have to get it to be designed. And because most product is actually designed, sorry, produced overseas, mm -hmm. it has to be quite precise or you'll get something completely different back. You rarely get the opportunity to sit there in the factory to make sure a sample's made the way you want it to be made. 
So, and, and let's assume once again, where were the main factories, for example, when you were working in New York? Um, actually, I did a lot of them in Hong Kong. So in Hong Kong, I assume, is it Imperial or is it metric? It's both. Ah, so whatever so, you send to there, in, in theory, you'll get whatever you have. Because I assume that if you work with a factory that does not work with Imperial or vice versa, does not work with metric. They're used be. to working with American companies and it's Imperial. So they are used to inches, they're used to yards, they're used to how Americans work. Mm -hmm. And they will convert it mostly on their side. Okay. Because that's something that I, I, I know a few things from the Fahrenheit... It's, I think it's 34, it's zero Celsius. I know a few things, but the, the imperial system, it's very hard for me to, to grasp. Well, a good cheat method, it's not 100% precise, but you double the Celsius and add 30. Double the double. So it's 15, you double it, it's 30, yeah. add 30. Well, 32, and it's roughly what the conversion is. Okay, and the feet and inches, do you have any kind of cheat cheat for that as well? Not so much, because... Um, <laughs> The strange thing, because England is a hybrid, so... Really? We, yeah. So when it comes to... If you go to the doctors, for example, mm -hmm. it is kilos, centimeters, and everything else, right? Um, but you measure... We still do pounds and ounces when it comes to fruits and vegetables. Oh. It's on a market stall. In the supermarket, mm -hmm. it is metric with the EU and all when we were in the EU. <laughs> Um, but it's miles. So we have a hybrid system. That's so we still weird. have miles. So you have, but, but you're an advantage because you then have to learn everything. At one point, you know everything. You're not confused. Well, it's, well, if you go to the gym, it's in kilos, right? And then you're like exercising. It's usually in kilometers. So like, it is, it's, it's a, like a mixture. Whereas in the States, everything is still, you know, it's pounds. And Pounds, ounces, miles, yards, inches, inches yeah. and feet as well. Yeah. The only the only measurement that I know in feet, it's six feet. It's one meter and 82. Okay. I don't even know that. I just know that because when I got to one meter and 82, I knew that I was six inches. I'm like, okay, no, six feet. I know this. <laughs> now I know. Yeah, then I got bigger good. and I don't know. I think it's six, one something. Okay. Yeah. So going again for your worldwide view of everything and being a female founder being a few right now being a female founder you said that was after new york in new york and no i mean i had my own label as well when i was in new york oh. um and i may this is a really embarrassing thing to say because <laughs> i am very like much a democrat um we used to sell a lot of dresses to fox news <laughs> like we used to do custom dresses for all the TV presenters on Fox News. <laughs> That's a very right-leaning... <laughs> so we didn't actually um, advertise that so much, even though they're incredibly super popular presenters. Mm -hmm. um, but when we'd go to the trade show, and because our studio was on um, West 38th Street, so we were quite close to mm -hmm. a lot of the studios, and we used to like, custom-make things and have a certain style. Um, and... We sold predominantly workwear, but being in a creative industry and being a female founder was not a big deal, right? So um, a lot of people in design are women um, mm -hmm. and they have like important roles or the, so it wasn't a, a big deal at all. But when you went to tech, eventually that might have been You know, I didn't really think about it to begin with. I didn't think of it. I've never really thought about it as a limitation. 
until it actually came to having discussions with investors or different um, like mentors and so forth. And the mm -hmm. questions that you'd be asked were completely different or the assumptions made than they are to male founders. You know, I remember one time I was sat next to this guy and we were talking about like products or whatever. And he had this startup. This was in Phoenix, actually. And it was a this property tech thing. And he was showing it on the website and I had something and I was talking about it. And uh, I remember like one of the guys came up to me, he's like, oh, this is pretty. Who did this for you? Right. And I was like, OK. And then the guy <laughs> next to me, they didn't ask him any questions. And he was laughing his head off because he didn't know anything. Right. He couldn't say anything or do anything. And he's like, the people talk to you like that all the time. And I'm like, yeah, well, they do. You know, um, I think then you start noticing mm -hmm. that like different treatment, probably. A lot of it's just patronizing and it's not from just the male mentors. Um, women are probably sometimes worse, um, especially when they're investors. Um, they don't want to be seen as um, giving favoritism. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. And or they've got to a point where they feel like they're quite successful in a male world and they don't want to let anybody in. And I just think they're the, the worst people in the world. I mean, I think if you're conditioned subconsciously as a male to be a certain way you almost can't help it but if you know that you can't help other women mm -hmm. or other minorities of any description well you could but you choose not to because you want to secure your place mm. i just think they're the worst people ever because it's not it's not a competition okay you know? yeah yeah that makes sense um Actually, just a side story. I remember when I was in Portugal, I met a, f a founder, a female founder that had a fashion startup as well. And she told me once that when she was talking with the f one of the first uh, investors, the investor said, oh, that's cute. Yeah. And she, she said that she felt uh, it was patronizing, but in a way that is like, that's sad. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I cannot know how that feels because not only I'm not a founder, I'm not going to be raising money anytime soon, mm -hmm. but at the same time, I, I wonder how does it feel to be, uh, okay, I'm, I'm, let's put some, some things straight in terms of this conversation. I'm not a person that believes in politically correct usually, mm -hmm. but I believe that some people have some difficulties in specific areas of the world. And when you get to the founder and you have to put your life or your, work in the hands of others, I believe that there can be some kind of weird way of looking at stuff. And everything that I know from female founders to investors, it's always the same thing. It's patronizing, condescending sometimes. You know, um, unless it's sorry to interrupt you, unless you're like really ruthless and you don't even know because you're just OK, you're saying shit. I don't care. No, I do, you know, the people that I mean, I remember I was at this um, Female Founders Conference in San mm -hmm. Francisco last year. And Eileen Lee, the head of, I'm pretty sure she's Eileen Lee, head of Cowboy Ventures, a really mm -hmm. successful venture firm. And she was saying that women have to be killers, right? They have to be so much better at the numbers and everything else. Because if you sat in a room with other investors and they're going over the numbers or whatever, women aren't going to have like, I like that dude, right? They mm -hmm. don't have that you know, when people say they invest in people like them, mm -hmm. they're not going to have that, right? So they have to have something else and be way better. Um, there's that adage that um, men go on promise and women go on proof. And I think really in, in like entrepreneurship, mm -hmm. that is particularly true. 
You know, you'll have some a lot of guys who have a good idea and they mm -hmm. say, oh, I can see myself in him. Whereas for women, there's definitely the perception that they need a lot more traction mm -hmm. or they need a lot more proof points. Why do you think that happens? Um, because there, it's a male-dominated industry. I believe that it's a numbers game eventually. I know that. It will change, but it has to change by the women I was talking about before not seeing it as competition, right? Mm. So it has to be... There is not one point where I feel that a man, if he invests in another man, thinks, oh, right, I'm looking like it's favoritism, right? Mm -hmm. They're just investing. They've got to get over themselves too and realize that you invest in a good team, idea, product, whatever you may invest in, mm -hmm. and just stand by it. You know, um, I think when people are so bothered about securing their own place, mm -hmm. it's a hindrance to everyone else. Then they end up being like Margaret Thatcher who obviously I despise, like, you know, that kind of female. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm, I'm saying that because I've been in a lot of situations where I've heard things of women that um, I was at a conference last year, actually. And there is um, apparently in, especially in the UK, women, um, only 1% of women look for outside funding. Really? Right. In the UK, 2.8% of funding goes, VC funding goes to women. Now, there's a lot of contributing factors to them, which I'm sure I don't know a lot of them. Mm -hmm. But the fact is, part of it is women don't necessarily want to put themselves through that. If they know they're going to get a lot of pushbacks and it's an uncomfortable situation. And um, when it comes to networking... Apparently, women are fantastic on a personal level, but on a business level, not as good as men, right? You know, there's a lot of reasons which go into it. But that's also, I assume that's also a little bit of bio, I won't say biology, but there's also different ways that our brains work. You know, I don't think it's a case of brains working, because then on a personal level, why would people be good at networking? Why would women be really good in, when it comes to PR and communications and different skills like that? Because it's, it's a matter of... This is my, my own view. I feel like it's a network thing, right? Mm -hmm. So it's very hard to infiltrate old boys clubs, isn't it? Right? Yeah. So if you're going into a room and you're female and practically everybody else is male, to really get into those circles when people are talking anyway, mm -hmm. it's difficult. Yeah. Right? So um, I would assume. Yeah, no, it is difficult. Um, it's difficult being the only female in lots of situations, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and the only kind of metric that other people see is that people didn't give you shit, right? Or mm -hmm. they weren't condescending to you. They don't seem to see that the conversation and the way it's structured is very much pro, you know, like very much male orientated. Mm -hmm. So it's hard then to get up and say something and feel quite comfortable. But um, going back to the um, um, the conference, uh, I asked one of the female VCs like um, about the Northern Powerhouse in Manchester. It's this big initiative by the government to try and get more entrepreneurship outside of London. Okay. So they're apparently um, giving a lot of money to different VC firms to invest in companies outside of Manchester. So my question was like, if that's the case and you're kind of starting from zero, say, in mm -hmm. Manchester, which is not, but I'm saying in theory, do you see that it would be a better playing field for female entrepreneurs? And her first answer was, well, we can't just invest in women just because they're women. Right? And like, and that just seemed like 
such a ridiculous response. It wasn't a case of investing in people just because they're female. It was a case of, do you think there'll be more investment to women because they haven't had the bias towards men because there's not that much to be, you know, to begin with. To begin with. Mm -hmm. um, and that was it. And that's the sort of attitude you get from a lot of female VCs that I've met. Mm. Yeah, we went on a, a big tangent here. Uh, going back to so your experience as a female founder, but you touched on one point that I was not expecting. Do people who have their own labels, are, can they be considered entrepreneurs at one point? What, what's, what's the day-to-day -day to someone who has their own label? Well, yeah. In our first year, we did a few hundred thousand dollars in like orders, you know, which if you're a tech company and you did that in orders, you'd be really super successful, yeah. right? So you're already I being yeah. millionaire. Yeah. <laughs> so that was, um, we took orders in no time. I would say that it's quite funny. So as a female founder, um, even in fashion, Mm -hmm. um, if you're saying about like, can they be considered founders? I wonder about this when you talk about like, you know, Casper mattresses, yes. for example, they are a tech company. For what reason I, they are considered a tech company? I do not know. It's the e-commerce part probably. Um, but. Uh, probably, but they started off with what? One mattress. <laughs> if you're a female founder and you sell clothes online, you are not a tech company. But if you are a lot of male founders and you sell mattresses online, you can be considered a tech-enabled company, right? It's kind of the way that there's like perceptions mm -hmm. of the value of doing something. Mm -hmm. So um, we do like nearby location, nearby retail. We'll, we'll, we'll go more uh, into shops. And, oh, I just mean because there's other companies mm -hmm. that, that do it and the way that they're perceived, not really as fashion platforms. Oh, okay. They're really perceived as retail platforms. And not necessarily tech. Um, always tech. Okay. Tech first, retail. The fashion is right at the back of what they do. Mm. So even though we are solving the same problem, we have a very, I would say, similar solution. The way they're described is very much, you know, tech, retail, and then fashion's right at the back. And the way we're always described is fashion first, tech right down at the bottom. And why do you do that? Okay, let's I do don't do that. I'm saying that okay, that's the way perception. other people perceive it. Okay. They focus on the fashion element first and only the fashion element, um, which doesn't bother me because we are about fashion retail. Mm -hmm. But we know I was talking about perceptions. Yeah, you don't want to, once again, you want some, I won't say quality, but you want to have some idea that if this kind of thought, this train of thought is good for this one, this should be the same for this one according if uh -huh. it's the same solution. Yeah, so when you were talking about um, are people who have their own labels considered founders, mm -hmm. it really depends on who is describing them. So I am sure that if we're looking at I don't know, Tory Burch or any, you know, particularly extremely successful labels, she's considered a founder. Or if you look at Sarah um, Blakely from Spanx, Spanx yeah. that she's considered a founder. Mm -hmm. um, I would just use those two as examples of people who would be considered founders in, in a fashion realm. So that, that, that's funny because when I think of when I think of artists and fashion designers, I, th I think of them as founders, not, not sorry, as, as artists. I, I don't know, I, and not only male or female. I think that when it's very artist, artistic, very 
put your hand in the mud and create something out of thin air, I usually think of you as a as an artist and not necessarily as a founder. Yeah, um, but the interesting thing is that I think that the title of founder is a relatively new thing, right? Yeah, definitely. And people try and use it, I guess, because entrepreneur is such a overused and horrid word nowadays that founder is, you know, the replacement. Yeah. You can be an entrepreneur, founder, in a few days you'll be a blockchain entrepreneur. and then <laughs> Yeah, maybe. Okay, so going back to your label, yeah. and that's actually something that, when you went to Abu Dhabi and started working in marketing, and how was the transition going from fashion design? You, we already touched a little bit on this, but I just want to see, did you study anything specific? Were you reading any books, anything specific when you did the transition to full-time marketing? Let's put it this way, in quotes. Did you read anything specific or is it just common sense from your own experience as I, a label? Um, well, when I was in London, I did a postgraduate diploma in marketing oh, okay. um, um, for the Chartered Institute of Marketing. So um, so you already had some bases and already... Yeah, so I already had some bases. But, you know, design and fashion is predominantly about marketing. It's not really about anything else. You know, um, it's not about quality, it's not about style, it's about marketing. Mm -hmm. And you kind of learn that early on. It's about who wears your clothes, where they're seen. Um, I would say the different things about having a label than say being a tech founder mm -hmm. is if you want to show at certain shows, you have to show a worth to begin with. You have to show that my stuff is good enough or my designs are good enough that these particular So it depends on who, who else is selling them or wearing them. Yes, you need to have brand equity to begin with, right? Whereas I, with, I would say, uh, like non-design founders or whatever, or tech founders, they can build up to that. You know, um, I would say that's one of the biggest differences where it's the, the main thing with design because they know that there's not very much that separates people. Mm -hmm. It's more about who's wearing the clothes and who champions you. Like it is in art, you know, it's like what galleries show you and so forth. Whereas with with tech, you can it's different. So transitioning now into tech, uh, can you g give me a little more more information? What's shopist? Um, why it started or everything? Give me give me a history lesson on shopist. Okay, so I was in New York and um, I was living in um, Brooklyn. I just moved, so I was in Manhattan beforehand, and I worked like ten blocks away from where I lived, so I knew the area pretty well. Uh, Where were you, sorry? Brooklyn? Yeah. So um, I was in Ponce Williamsburg. Um, and I booked a vacation and I really needed a swimsuit. And mm -hmm. I, it was my whole problem of going to my smartphone, searching, and not finding what I wanted nearby. And it just didn't really make any sense because I was so used to going on, you know, like beauty booked or for like a salon or mm -hmm. going to an open table to book any old restaurant. Mm -hmm. I was always on Yelp for happy hours. So I was so used to finding what I wanted to find that I was really surprised that when it comes to retail, you can't just find what you you want to find. And um, Google Shopping, even now, is particularly terrible. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it. you can find something if you know exactly what you want to find. There's no, like, inspiration or anything else. So... Um, I had that problem and started talking to retailers about it, but it was a while afterwards that really anything started to happen. So um, as I was saying, I was still working in design and uh, 
I was noticing in the garment district just the sheer number of sample sales and pop-ups. And if anyone's not familiar, in especially in New York and London, you get a lot of sample sales. So usually it's one or two or three designers. Mm-hmm. It used to be when there were actual sample sales, they'd be the samples that you would put, um, you'd have come back from the factories and you'd have like whole collections of them and you'd have to go to a warehouse or a special location and get them really cheap. Nowadays, sample sales are the way that the designers can actually sell the clothes themselves and get the profit for them rather than sending them like to TK Maxx or somewhere else. So they're incredibly popular. Um, But I noticed that, like in the building that I was in, we had like Millie, loads of other designers in the building. They would just put a piece of paper on the elevated door and say, you know, sample sale on the 16th floor for two days, like 80% off. It wasn't readily available to anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just thought it was a shame, like that there was like, no connection for people to find these sample sales that they wanted to get rid of clothes and just find retail nearby. So um, as I was saying, I thought about it for a while and then um, I was deciding like whether to actually do anything about it. Mm-hmm. You know, like I was really kind of naive. So I had the idea. I went to see, I think it was Golden Seeds. I just like walked in and said, hey, I've got this idea. Golden Seeds? It's um, a VC fund, okay. <laughs> early stage VC fund in New York. Like literally just got office hours and just went in and said, yeah, I want to find like retail nearby and I need like, three hundred thousand dollars to do it (laughs) clearly they said no but um but the point is i think i came from because i was like quite successful in design i didn't see there's any barriers i didn't know and anything about anything like textiles or anything really Mm -hmm. and i think not knowing any of that gave me the freedom to just go and ask a lot of questions so in my studio in new york do you know app boy no. At Boy's quite, um, if you look them up, they're quite a successful company. They were at Boy, like app, A-P-P- a- app, Boy. Yeah. No, I never heard. Yeah, of so if you look at them, they do like a lot of the marketing for, um, like, it's not marketing. It's it's a promotion, I, maybe. No, no, it's a really powerful platform that people use for apps and different, um, different things like that for their like, um, for their analytics, for their push notifications, for their everything else. So they were in the office next door because in the garment district, a lot of tech companies came in because, you know, the huge warehouse space where there used to be, I don't know, 50 machines. Mm-hmm. They had more money. They're like venture money. They would come in. The factories would go and tech companies would appear. Mm-hmm. So on our floor, um, there was a ton of studios and showrooms. And at Boyu were next door. They started off with this small space and then they just kept on acquiring more and more space. So I used to just like go next door and ask them like tons of questions. Like this is what I want to do. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, like the founders mainly, they all went to, um, not the main founder, but the co-founders, they all went to MIT and um, very like, very tech orientated. And they're like, yeah, you just need to, you know, <laughs> tell me what I should do. Just like do an MVP, just do this and like see if it's viable and, um, you know, really think about or it. Or do you accustomed to these nomenclatures already the mvp i assume so because you went to the vc and probably you know they i read um i read the lean startup um so yeah so i just like listened to all those like things and you know it wasn't too complex and then um i thought i'm really interested in this so i went to we work labs 
It's in Brooklyn. The first one was in Brooklyn, right? I went to the one at 222 Broadway. That part of geography, I don't know, but I, I, I was just... It's it like opposite um, the World Trade Center. Okay. So I went to WeWork Labs, like literally not knowing a thing that I was going to do. And there were amazing companies like all around, like Thunderclap, they sat in front of mm -hmm. me. Um, like Ruckus were behind. Um, tons and tons, like um, one of the guys, he was like on the front of Fortune, not the front of Fortune, he was like one of the 40 under 40, like just all on my desk, right? Mm -hmm. So... I would say that was probably the best experience of wanting to the change from fashion into this. So I was like, this is kind of what I want to do. I have no idea how to do it. How to do it. And they were just super helpful. But how, wh when did you decide? So you were saying that you were kind of trying to figure it out. It took about um, eight months. So at the time I was married and my husband was in the military, um, in the US military, and he was stationed, this is my ex-husband in Bahrain, and he really wanted to move to the UAE. So, UAE being United Arab Emirates. Emirates. So um, he was offered a position with the government, and he was like, you know, like we, we could really do this. And I was like, well, if this is something we're going to do, then I will close down my label, like, and I will go to the labs for a little while, and then we'll move. So that was the that was kind of like one of the big deciding factors in it. Basically, it's not like you were forced, but you kind of made the decision. I, yeah, made a decision and it was like, otherwise I probably would have stayed in design for a lot longer. And uh, not, not meaning to, to, to ask for any values, but when you made the transition, did you have any emergency fund on your side? Because from the moment you left the, the label, you wouldn't have yeah. like a, a regular... Well, I, I got money from the label. Like um, You were bought out? In... Um, I got, because we did a lot of private label stuff, so mm -hmm. I, I got some money from that. And I also had money anyways, so... Um, I didn't, I was okay. Okay, okay. Just trying to figure out because when there are not a lot of people who just give up or not say give up, but leave a dream to go chase another one. Or Yeah, um, I always knew that I could go back to design, right? So um, it wasn't like leaving a dream because it was a viable business. It wasn't something, I worked in design for a long time. Mm -hmm. um, it wasn't something that was like being a singer or something that, you, you know, you have to hit the jackpot. I worked in it, the industry for a long time and you get to a point where you do something or you don't do something, right? Um, going to the UAE was difficult in a way that I did not know about the legal structure of startups or anything like that. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to have a startup there, but you needed sort of either to be in a free zone or you needed to have a sponsor. There was all these different components that mm -hmm. I didn't really know it before I went. Um, and, you know, I'd lived in the Middle East. I mean, I'd lived in the UAE before. So the culture and everything was fine. Um, but the legal part of business creation, probably? Yeah, I mean, they didn't have bankruptcy laws. I don't know if they've changed it right now. So if you take outside funding, there's no bankruptcy. You technically owe that money. Whether the people pursue it or not is a different option. But there's things like that you have to really take into You don't have the LLC thing? Mm -mm. You have, um, if you're in a free zone, it's an FZE mm -hmm. or something else, depending on what emirate you're in. Um, and then if you want to have a mainland business, not free zone business, you need a local sponsor who owns technically, I think it's 51% of the business. So there is a lot of things that you have to take into consideration. Um, 
which I didn't think about before I went. And is Shoppers, was Shoppers created there or did you have something before Shoppers came to be? Um, I went to work at um, a marketing company again because it oh, okay. made a lot of sense. And I worked at a wearable tech show in the UAE. So that was quite good. because I got Wearable tech, we're talking about uh, Fitbit, Pebble, those kinds of things. Yeah, Fitbit. Not necessarily one of those companies. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, Airables as well. I think when people used to still use the word wearables. Um, so I did that. And then I played around with Shoppies for a bit, but it wasn't really anything mm -hmm. it wasn't like a full-time gig or it wasn't really anything you were moonlighting it uh yeah just like deciding how it could be just like playing around with wireframes and so forth then um i moved to phoenix for a little bit and then um which i would say out everywhere in the world that i've lived it was the worst place that i've lived it's not a bad place it's just a very closed place mm -hmm. it's um there's a lot of tech there actually a lot of companies issue I think it, I can't remember how many, but it's got a massive computer like science section or whatever. So a lot of large companies have second offices at in least Phoenix. in Phoenix. Is it, is it a tax reason? Or it's cheaper, right? So it's cheaper. Um, it's got a high standard of living. So a lot of companies that may have their main office in San Francisco or somewhere else may do marketing and sales in Phoenix, right? Or they might do something else. So um, for getting a job, it's super, it's super good. There are tons of jobs and the growth. Um, I, think, I think one of the cities in Phoenix is one of the fastest growing cities in the US in the job Ooh. perspective. So, you know, for certain aspects of it, it's mm -hmm. good. So, um, but when I first went, there's a guy called, what was it, like Marty Zilwig or something. And I went to Phoenix Startup Week and I was like explaining what I want to do. And it's just like, yeah just don't do this in Phoenix, go to New York or LA, right? So from that point on, I just knew it wasn't like the right place. It was quite clear. It was quite clear. And, um, you know, everywhere I've kind of lived, because I've lived in quite a few places, I've met people and made friends really easily. And I find it quite difficult there. I mean, downtown Phoenix is great. Like Phoenix as a whole, the hiking and everything else is an interesting city. But when it comes to like startups and entrepreneurship, if they don't have a heavy like marketing or sales or property background, they're just not understood very well. It's sort of like a lot, there's a lot of money there and a lot of money you can get in investment, but you really need to be in like property tech or some kind of sales and marketing and then they get it. Otherwise, it's just, they say it's like people here wouldn't have invested in Facebook or Snapchat, you know, it's kind of, really? that's what they say, you know. Not everyone, but a of few course, people. Of course. Then I came back to London. And then that was when like Shoppers was really a full-time thing. Um, That's when you, when you moved, sorry to interrupt you, but when you moved back to London, how was Shoppers at that time? Was it still something that you were moonlighting? Were you, I yeah. assumed you already had some wireframes of what yeah, you wanted to do. Yeah, it was but sort of like, um, then it was sort of like getting a team together to actually make it possible. So my decision at the time was whether to go to New York or whether to go to London. Um, because I'm a US citizen as well, it, um, it, I could do either, right? So I guess London made sense to me because if you look at fast tech and retail tech, it really is the capital from like Net-a-Porte to Farfetch to... Lynch. Portuguese founder. Yeah, yes. I have met him. He's a very nice guy. Yes, he is. Um, and... Um, 
it just made a lot of sense to be in London. I know it very well. I think, as I said, I went to Central St. Martin's at the University of the Arts London. That's got a massive alumni community. Mm -hmm. So I've got a lot of contacts there. And um, my contacts in New York were very much in fashion, but more in design, right? Mm -hmm. Not so much with the retailers. So um, I kind of came back to London and we've been working on like Shopisons. Okay, for people at home who don't know what Shoppist is specifically, mm -hmm. you already gave us a few ideas, but let's assume that I have Shoppist on my phone. Okay. What should I expect from the app? It's an app, of course. Yeah, so um, because we launched in Berlin a couple of weeks ago as well. Congratulations. It's in German too, thank you. Uh -huh. um, so we did localized part of it in German. Um, you can find nearby retail. So you can find products, brands and designers mostly in the fashion textile uh, industry all in fashion at the moment okay, okay we're focused on fashion right now we might go into different verticals we are planning to in the future mm -hmm. but we really want to go into more cities and verticals to begin with so the first market that you have now available it's berlin because that's where you are right now um in london uh, first so markets in london and because then you were there yeah and then berlin so in berlin we've got about 42 shops on board that's fantastic um thank you we haven't got all the stock from all the shops on board yet, but we will do by the time in the next like two weeks. It just we just have to make sure like everything looks good, the product mm -hmm. sizes and so forth. And we've we've started with a created selection of stores, like stores that we want to shop in mm -hmm. that we think have really cool products, but also are an amazing experience. Right? Um, we're all about the experience of shopping. So mm -hmm. if you go into a store and the sales associate's amazing or it looks nice and it's something that you remember, you might want to Instagram and you have, you know, great service that you can remember. Not somewhere where you go and it's, you feel like it's transactional mm -hmm. and there's nothing great. So if it would be a restaurant, for example, it's somewhere you want to go again rather than just, mm -hmm. and even if that was a hole in the wall, as long as it's something that's amazing and you can think about it and you want to recommend it to your friends. Even a hostel something. Pardon? A hostel. Yeah, even if it was a hostel. Just but, but that's further down the line, I assume. Yeah, it's a, as long as it's a great experience, right? So that's what we're really focused on, the experience. Um, and we also have, as I mentioned before, lots of temporary retail, which is a very poncy way of saying sample sales and pop-ups, right? <laughs> so in London, there's a ton going on all the time. They're super popular. Um, we show them and we also have like guides about fashion and shops. Okay, so let's assume I open the app. It's it's on Android as well? Android and it iOS. It is, but our Android is not updated yet. So come back in a month. <laughs> okay. No worries. When this episode airs, probably it's already everything updated. <laughs> yeah, then go on to Android on the App Store. Um, so on the Play Store even. So let's assume I take out my phone and I say nearby where I can find swimsuit. Yep. Um, a swimsuit, a brand, if you're looking for a brand, or if you're like, you know, into ethical or sustainable, you can... You can also research on that. Yeah. And then you'll come up with the shops nearby that you can That's buy that product from. And, and okay, and is it like a WeChat kind of thing where I can reserve, go to the shop and find that? Or just it's on stock, go there, and you might still be on stock when you get there? You can reserve. We have a reserve now button. We have a try now, reserve now, and buy now. The buy now is sort of hidden because we really want to push people into physical shops. What's the difference between, the, the, what's the try now? Um, the try now just gives you the information of where to go right now okay. to go into the shop. The reserve is 
I can go there tomorrow and it will still be there. Yeah. And we also have like a WhatsApp like chat function where you can talk to the store owners. Good. Because um, a lot of the time there's like a trust issue. I'm telling you that there is a product or Shopist is telling you there's a product in stock. Mm -hmm. You don't always believe what you read, right? So um, it's so you can like chat with the sales associate mm. and they can tell you if it's in or not. But that can go the other way around. I can say I reserve and never show up. Yeah, but it's a timed reservation. Okay. It's like anything else. But it's like going to an open table, right? You can reserve. You don't put any money down if you turn up at 8 p.m. or you don't turn up at 8 p.m. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Um, but, um, yeah, so that's what you can do right now. Um, for uh, the shopper, it's good in the sense that they can see what's in the store. Yeah, of course. I think that's that's a good value. I mean... I, you cannot see, but I'm not a big clothes shopper. I have 16 white t-shirts, 15 mm -hmm. black t-shirts. I'm very, not the minimalistic thing, but I don't want to think about what I want to wear. But I think that for anyone else who likes to shop or who likes to have that experience. You know, it's quite funny because I feel like when I talk to most guys, they always say what you just said. Like, not always, I can't give a definite. Mm -hmm. But it's I don't know if it's because it's fashion or something. I get this, like, qualifier and it's like... I'm not a fashion guy. I've just got this. And I go, fine. But the fact is you buy T-shirts, right? Ah, of course. Of so course. there's something that you want to buy. So instead of like going around the streets looking for it, you can find where the closest white or black ah, T-shirt is. Of course. You know? um, so to give you an idea, I mean, uh, I have two black jeans. Yeah. Both in the same store. I'm very, I, I, I will say that I'm very uh, loyal to a specific brand. Yeah, I think that's great. We love loyalty. Uh besides the shoes that I have today and it's because they were very cheap on Zalando outlets yeah. I'm always Nike uh, jeans now I'm Uniqlo shirt I can go to t-shirt it's I don't care it's one yeah. euro it's wide it's good as long as it covers you the know, body you know what will happen more and you can see this even with H&M mm -hmm. and different stores and it is the trend we are going more again into like slow fashion you know mm -hmm. into things that aren't one euro things that we keep Things that are not so seasonal. Um, I believe it's... Well, I can't tell you the statistic. But... Because um, it's just gone out of my head. I can't tell you how many hundreds of millions of tons of clothes are thrown away each year into landfill, right? Really? Yeah. Most of the clothes that we buy end up in landfill. Especially when we're buying one euro t-shirts. There's no value to them. We don't perceive a value. We mm. wear them. We throw them away. Sure. We don't usually even take them to... Clothes banks, the charity shops have got enough T-shirts. I mean, what resale value do they have to the shops, right? Mm -hmm. um, then we have the problem of, no offense to the Zalando, but companies like Zalando, which have very generous return policies, most of that stock does not get resold, right? Um, it's the same in the UK and everywhere else in the world. Uh, it, you know, if you think about having a 60 or 100 day return policy, mm -hmm. right now it's boiling hot. I buy, I don't know, a sundress. I return that in 100 days. It's winter, right? What's going to happen to that product? They don't want to keep it in a warehouse. Mm -hmm. um, if it doesn't get so on sale, it ends up in landfill or it's incarcerated. Incarcerated. <laughs> no, it's not sent to prison. Yeah, it's incinerated. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that's a big problem that people are really going to have to start to address. But do you think they're already addressing that situation? Yeah. If you look at a lot of the trends right now, H&M is going more into slow fashion. We're not as 
seasonal as we used to be, right? And this is affecting companies like H&M. It will start affecting companies like Zara in the sense that you say that right now you wear two pairs of jeans and different T-shirts. Basically. Right. So in the probably the fall or the winter, you're just going to have more layers on. Yeah, I, I always have a T-shirt. Right. So we're not keeping to trends as much as as times before. Mm-hmm. Um, there's certain styles that you'll have that will take off a lot. But we're more about like, we're getting more and more about buying better product mm-hmm. or direct to consumer product and buying things that we see have like worth to them again. Mm-hmm. And with that, um, you know, the fast fashion is having an issue. Yeah, I think that at the same time, fast fashion has also been an issue or uh, I've never heard of fast fashion until January, for example. Once again, because I don't pay attention to the industry mm. and probably that's yeah. my own ignorance. But no. I think that fast fashion recently has been taking a lot of heat because of the, the environmental issues, yeah. the everything. Yeah. Once again, I'd never heard of that until yeah. January. And since then, I've been hearing a lot about that specific. Ad. You know, garments and the garment industry has a lot of issues. Um from manufacturing to labor to, you, you know, the price of them that we kind of turn a blind eye because we like the sequin top, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and during Berlin Fashion Week at the Ethical Sustainable Fashion Show, you could see like the huge um, rise of, it's not ethical anymore, it's like sustainable fashion. It's not like hippie t-shirts or like hemp clothes or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's more... To, and it goes hand in hand, I would say, with the rise of like veganism. You know, it's mm-hmm. like vegan leather or like, you know. Full leather, full bacon, full. Yeah. And there's like a whole thing in the UK right now about banning fur outright. You know, it's sort of, we're, we are becoming more conscious. We work just ban meat. Yeah, really? I did not know that. It's, uh, I mean, you can eat meat inside, but you're not reimbursed when you have meat purchases on your uh, lunch cart or whatever it is. And you, you're not reimbursed when you plan events. You're not reimbursed for meat. No, I think it's it's kind of sensible that we... I mean, I eat meat. You know, I do go through veganism every now and again, but I eat meat. I eat meat every day. So. And I also wear fur, which I shouldn't admit, but I, I <sighs> kind of don't in London. I do in the States. In London, I'm always scared that somebody's going to pelt me. So, like, <laughs> I've got a bright kind of um, jacket and it's got two colors of fur and everyone thinks it's faux so I'm like, I'll, I'll keep it like that um, <laughs> you know um, if you want I can cut this out of the interview if, uh, no, no, if it's it gets fine. to British I, no, no, it's fine I, I promise not to buy any more fur I wouldn't buy it again but I already have it and I feel like because I already have it mm-hmm. it's it would go to waste and it would be a dishonor of whatever yeah. animal came yeah I think like people are really more conscious uh, you know I used to have a really bad habit of buying loads of shit like I would go and I had to stop myself to H&M and just buy the equivalent of one, 200 euros of a load of crap that I wouldn't wear and I would throw <laughs> away, right? Because there's that rush of buying. Mm-hmm. And it's a FOMO applied to, 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 to clothes. In it, it really is because you can buy a lot of stuff and especially in the UK. Because I, mean, I think somebody said to me, like, why does Zalando not work in the UK? And I'm it's kind of like, because we're so fast fashion orientated. We go out, out. We like going out to wear, and mm-hmm. we like to wear out outfits. You know, mm-hmm. you can see the Brits around here. We like dressing up, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and we get rid of clothes on a seasonal kind of, on a seasonal basis. But um, yeah, that's like by the by. <laughs> um, I 
we don't have like that kind of mindset, but it is changing. And you think that with Shopist as well, you can, once again, since you're adding value to the experience of buying, you're adding value, you're being able to research which are ethical brands or sustainable yeah. brands. Do you think that by, I won't say enforcing that situation, but giving an option to that, and once again, giving some power to the experience itself, do you think that Shopist can also help in that area? Because once again, you're not it, going to H&M and getting 500 t-shirts. Yeah, I think, I you're think it is. You're taking the time to go to a store. Because you know, you know, I have friends over in, in the States who've got friends who've got like, you know, like really amazing denim stores and so forth. And people really research the products. I find that guys do it more than women a lot of the time. They'll research, you know, a special pair of jeans and like Japanese denim or whatever. <sighs> they'll buy a product and they'll spend a lot of money on it and cherish it, right? Mm -hmm. And that product you'll see in a vintage shop maybe in a hundred years to come, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas the shit that you buy from H&M, you're not going to see it anywhere in a hundred years apart from in a landfill maybe. And that's not anything to do with H&M. It's just the quality and the price. Mm -hmm. Um... We are going more towards that, consciously or subconsciously. We can see it with food, right? Oh, um, I think at one time there was a race to the bottom for fast food, and now mm -hmm. people are like, yeah, they want more quality products. And it's the same with clothes. And um, even with designer clothes or whatever, people are going more into that vein. And with shoppers, we do want to promote that. But more so, we want to promote the amazing like makers around the world that don't have that kind of digital connection. Mm -hmm. Just saying like, and I think I mentioned in my pitch last week that we eventually want to be that digital connection for like leathersmiths in Marrakesh or wherever it may be. Mm -hmm. When I was in the UAE, in Abu Dhabi and Dubai, and I would be looking for a certain type of product, right? I would want to know where I could buy like really amazing like Indian gold or something. Mm -hmm. And there was no easy way to find it. We want to kind of, be the digital connection for those shops as well. So you want to be almost have as a reliable Google Maps with us in a very simplistic way. You want to have a chance for people to go there and at the same time have inspiration, but at the same time know what the hell's around us. Yeah, just to just get out of the, you know, the clone zones of just all H&M, Zara, and McDonald's and all the brands that you see every, everywhere else in the world, right? To actually see that amazing shit that if you don't know it exists and you don't buy from it, mm -hmm. it will die and then you'll end up with just another chain store. And the great things that you can get all over the world that we kind of only see if somebody imports it. Mm -hmm. And be the connection for those types of stores all over the world, wherever you may be. So if you go to, I don't know, from Tokyo to anywhere, mm -hmm. you can find the interesting things and not just go to the Uniqlo that's the same, more or less, than the one in London. I kind of like Uniqlo. I, uh, there's no Uniqlo in Lisbon or in Portugal, I think. And I kind of like the, the quality. It's No, there's nothing wrong with it. It's, it's just the it's, same. There's n I shop at all these stores too. Mm -hmm. But it's great to have the option. Of course. It's sort of like, you know, we can go to Alexanderplatz and everything's more or less a chain, right? Mm -hmm. It's nice to have the option of going to independent restaurants with like course, a cool concept. I feel that because fashion has got so used to having big brands that everything else is getting left behind. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the stores that we work with have huge brands inside. They will sell Adidas, they'll sell Nike, they'll just sell interesting versions that you don't get on Zalando mm -hmm. or they will not sell to Zalando. Mm -hmm. 
and um, the way it's styled. And, you know, also, if you go into half of these stores, you kind of know whatever you buy, you're going to look good because they've got a really good eye, mm-hmm. you know, and I like that as well. Uh, just have a couple more questions. I don't want to take a lot no more worries. of your time. Thank you so, so much. Um, how was your experience as a non-tech background founder? Because even though you had a design background and, it can, and that can be at one point considered tech What's been the, the experience of building an app or being the founder of a company that's mostly business around the app? Well, I feel that I'm at an advantage being a non-technical founder. I also, like three, a few things. Most of the founders that I meet are non-technical. Really? For, yeah. From tech companies? Yeah. They will have a technical co-founder, but they won't be technical. The difference a lot of the time is, well, they might have done something, you know, somewhere along their lines. I mean, if you look at, say, the CEOs and this Techstars program, mm-hmm. hardly any of them are technical. I have only met a couple of them, so... Yeah. yeah. So if you go down the companies, mm-hmm. most of them don't come from a technical background. They may have done something uh, in a company that's technical, mm-hmm. but they're not programmers or developers or anything else or engineers or yeah the difference i find that it's more pronounced if you're female and non-technical because it's like two red flags right <laughs> so that is um my finding okay. so um you're saying there's like two british companies the other british guy is non-technical he is uh, when he when he told me he sounded very technical when he tried to explain the company the first time yeah But the thing is, nobody's ever going to ask him or they won't presume that he was not technical, right? I didn't presume he was not technical. But then you just assumed he was. Yeah, of course. Yeah, exactly. And he explained everything in so much detail and it's such a very specific area of the blockchain area but without tokenization, everything, that when he talked, okay, you're an engineer, come, let's talk. But I I put on the engineer glasses and engineer headphones just to f- try to figure out what he was saying. Okay. Um, and I find that as well... Um, The assumption's always going to be, and I know this from actually technical female founders, that um, that is obviously not me, but technical female founders, they will get mansplained shit from people who probably couldn't even do a WordPress site, you know? So that's, and not everyone, but mm-hmm. this is the experience. I think it, what else is quite tricky, and I know this from going to female panel last night, if it's somebody asks you about being a female founder and you like talk about it, mm-hmm. It's very difficult to walk the tightrope between being honest and people thinking that you're complaining, right? So it's mm-hmm. sort of like, in, in female circles, you can talk about what it's like to be a female founder. To a wider audience, people just think you're bitching. So it's sort of like, if I start saying, you know, oh, well, there's two red flags being female and non-technical. But, but that's true. I mean, every other thing, it's a red flag when you call, when you call, talk about investing because any other thing that can be considered a disadvantage, it's a, it's a red flag. If I created a company today and I'm not a native English speaker, they can say I'm not a local, I'm not a, Eng- a native German speaker, I'm young. So a lot of things can be considered a red flag. The, Yeah, not as much probably no, as being a woman. that's bullshit, though. Because that's the kind of shit that you have to listen to when you say it. It's sort of like when people say, well, if you just work hard enough, you'll be fine. Mm-hmm. It's kind of crap. The fact is, you've <laughs> got to get into the room to begin with, yeah. and you've got to get that leg up. So it's sort of like, um, my experience, I don't have a problem being a non-technical founder, because practically all the technical people um, 
I'm sorry, practically all the founders are non-technical. I actually remember when I had my interviews to come here and I spoke to Jens Kapinski on the phone and I mm -hmm. asked him about when he, you know, because I, I felt really self-conscious about being non-technical. And I think he said something like 80% of the people are non-technical founders that, he, that, that come through or he's invested in. Mm -hmm. And I was really surprised, but that put me on ease a lot. The difference is that people don't really assume or ask questions. They're always going to kind of assume you that are. You, they are technical. So for someone, sorry to interrupt you. So for someone outside of the, this room, outside of our conversation, which has been very pleasant, and thank you very much. No someone who's non-technical and has that same mentality, ah, I, I, that might work as a disadvantage. What would you have to I say? I don't think it's a disadvantage. No, no, for someone who thinks okay. it might be. I would say it's not a disadvantage. Um, one thing that is becoming more popular that I think wasn't popular before is having domain expertise, right? Actually knowing the market very well mm -hmm. and knowing what you're trying to achieve because things will change but at least if you've got an end goal of how you where you want to be um i think because i'm not technical mm -hmm. um i don't see limitations i think when you are quite technical and you can say oh you got to build this or you got to do this you got to do that i don't see it because i'm just like i just want this to work as maybe an end user or the retailer might want it to work i don't see well you know problems with like code or the server or anything else i don't really care it either works or it doesn't work so um i think in that respect it makes it a lot easier i think if you have a completely technical team you might micromanage maybe i don't know you you really i mean i was told that we have too much product in the product and we're like we've got a friggin app and a website it's not you know what the hell are we doing you know what i mean it's kind of it's not too much product right um, and I find, and I, this is what I was saying about the competition. Coming from a fashion background, and my co-founders come from a retail background, um, like as well Joshua, who is our sales director, knows everything about retail. We went to St. Martin's together. Mm -hmm. um, we know the market inside out. So we've looked at competition, and they've come from it from a very much a problem-solution basis. Mm -hmm. It's like, we know where there's a top nearby, you can find that top. It's very much just like product search. That's not how women particularly shop, right? Mm -hmm. So it's sort of um, not being so technical and just being solution orientated has mm -hmm. actually helped us when we're working with the stores because they like our mission. They like the way we like look and feel like that's the product and they like what we stand for. So it's worked in our favor, mm -hmm. not being too technical. Like, uh, you know, if we went in and were really technical about like, the pros and the cons or how it works they wouldn't give a shit mm -hmm. you, you know they're buying into yeah, of course. an idea so that's what i would say but to anyone who is a non-technical founder i would say there's a shitload of tech talent in the world it's not particularly cheap or easy to find but there is a lot and there's a lot of technical people who want to do something in entrepreneurship or be a founder they just don't have ideas so if you've got a really good idea Mm -hmm. and a strong background, then go for it. Because it's probably the cheapest time in history that you can actually build some kind of tech product <laughs> on some platform with some sort of like MVP somehow or prototype or whatever and test it and see if it works. And if it fails, as long as it doesn't take too much time or money, who cares? Okay, so thank you very much for, for this. I think, and I hope everyone listening right now in terms of non-technical background, me included, I'm not a technical background. I always feel at a disadvantage because 
I feel that if I could code, if if I could do this, I could do that. Yeah, but you know. But but the way you, the thing you said, I could get someone with a technical background. Yeah, but you know the amazing thing is, if you actually look, I mean, the amount of time, a couple of years we've been doing this, we've probably spent too much time on building a product. I would say, mm-hmm. if I had to go back and do this again, I would probably build get something built probably in three months that we spent sixteen months doing right and just test it, and there's in, and then just not worry that it's like in Swift or whatever language mm-hmm. it is. And just show people and get the reaction. I think being and started a rating from there and seeing according. And to I it. think as well, one of my biggest problems being a non-technical founder actually, and coming from a design and creative background, is I was always too much a perfectionist to show something that I didn't think was beautiful. Mm-hmm. Right? You know, and that's something that I think a lot of people have to get over because um, it's who says like if you're not ashamed of your like Reed Hoffman. Yeah. If you're not ashamed of the first um, product or the first launch, you've gone, you've launched too too late. Yeah, and I think that's that's really it. And um, coming from a design background, very much you don't want to send something out or sell a product that you don't think is beautiful. And you that, have time to make it beautiful. You prob- might not yeah. have a, not, a lot of in time. In fashion, it has to be, or people aren't going to buy it, right? Yeah, of course. In tech, but, not, but doesn't have to be uh, perfect. No, I, what's the other quote? It's like, now I strive for excellence, not perfection. <laughs> I'm full of quotes. I just say, just go for it. And the great thing is, like, if you're not failing, you're not learning. And I wish I gave myself the chance to fail a bit more earlier on and not be embarrassed. Because I was, like, really painfully embarrassed if something didn't work, right? You know, like, if, if, if it was a bit buggy mm-hmm. or to go to a shop and it didn't work or, you know, I wouldn't show my friends I wouldn't do anything because it wasn't that perfect product Mm -hmm. but for the budget and the time and the expertise we had it was not going to look like like Instagram or Farfetch or Mm -hmm. any of this shit but I expected that on a shoestring so it's like really manage expectations and Mm -hmm. be as happy as shit because people around you will be really impressed that you've just done something Mm -hmm. and they will promote the hell out of it but you've got to promote it first. If you're embarrassed and you're not like 100%, this is amazing, then they're not going to buy into it, right? Of course. Uh, one of the things that I also, that you said, and just finishing up before the, um, the lightning round, that will be the fastest mm-hmm. part. One of the things that you said earlier in the conversation that I, it really resonated with me is that you not coming from a business background, from not necessarily the tech background, I think that it, this is actually something that you read and hear every day is that you came with a f- completely fresh perspective. Mm. You didn't come from with the MVP knowledge. With the, you, you knew those things, but you were not massacred into existence of your brain. You know, and I agree. And I think over this process, I got a bit like that. And I, you know, I started knowing more mm-hmm. and I started getting a bit like petrified because I kind of knew more. I think when like, um, since being here, like Joshua joined like two months ago mm-hmm. and he came from like retail in London and he came again as a fresh person in non-tech world mm-hmm. with, hey, this is it, you know, no, like I probably was 18 months ago <laughs> and it was good to see that again. You, you know, like first perspective, a fresh look at things, different set of eyes that are not tech, 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 tech. Yeah, words. and then like you know, what I find when you really start emerging into tech is that you kind of get a load of excuses. Oh, it's kind of like why things don't work. Oh, well, it's just this or it's just that or just that. And at first, you're like. 
bullshit. I'm not going to listen to that. But then because you hear them all the time, you're like, oh, it's just a server problem or just this or mm-hmm. just that or just the other. Which, you know, I kind of say to our tech team, we work with mainly um, end users, being the shoppers and independent retailers. They're not enterprise clients, right? They don't give a shit that we've got beta on the site. They don't mm-hmm. know what beta means. You know, it's yeah. kind of like they don't care. And if something doesn't work, they're just going to churn it. So um, and that's sort of what I think when I think of like like tech, you know, like the excuses that we come up with or, you know, build times mm-hmm. or whatever, anything else. And I kind of like, I can get said this when it was during Berlin Fashion Week. Bizarre thing about tech is that we kind of, People allow delays all the freaking time, mm-hmm. right? So during Berlin Fashion Week, we had a problem with one of the um, the releases on the App Store. So I was talking to like seven heads of the fashion councils, like from like um, um, UK actually, from British Fashion Council, from the Russian Fashion Council, and everything. I was showing them a part of the app and a product which was 0.7 miles away, kilometers. Sorry, <laughs> no um, was showing being 6,000 kilometers away. <laughs> So obviously I had to bullshit about that and just be like, yeah, you know, blah, 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 blah. But then I was talking to like tech guys and they're like, oh yeah, they don't like, they don't seem, care. It's, don't it seem it to happens. Care. Oh, at least it works. And I'm like, the equivalent of that is sort of going to new, like Berlin Fashion Week, even though it's a small one, with last season's collection, just to prove that you can make clothes, right? <laughs> so it's kind of like... That's what tech's like. Sometimes <laughs> just show a demo, we can do something. You're like, no, just... You want the perfectionist kind of thing. No, you just want to show the current thing. You just want to show what's current, right? Mm-hmm. You, you know, what actually works. So I think that's the difference between tech and fashion. In fashion, you would like show the collection you're supposed to show. In tech, you'll show the previous version and say, hey, at least we got a demo. <laughs> okay. Let's jump into the lightning round. Lightning round is really quickly. It's four questions, okay. four or five questions. You have one minute to answer. It's ta-ta-ta, really fast, okay? Mm-hmm. So what's the book that has impacted you the most? Feel the fear and do it anyway. Feel the... Fear? Feel the fear. And do it anyway. Who's it from? I don't know. I've read it a few times. I think I read it first when I was like 21 or something, and I was freaking out when I was graduating. Okay, I'll it's have really to read It's that. like an old book, but it's really good. Feel the fear and... Do it anyway. Do it anyway. That's a great title. Yeah. <laughs> that that out of itself, you might not even need to read it. You just do it. Just live by it, man. You're looking around. You read the title. Okay, that's it. Let's go. <laughs> okay. What's the tool you wouldn't be able to live without? The tool. Tool. Uh, it can be an app. It can be a phone. It can be a computer. Even though those are very common answers. Just putting you on the spot. Please don't save two. The tool that I couldn't use without would be um, my eyebrow makeup. Okay. <laughs> but on a, probably on a technical version, <laughs> um, just G Suite, all the all the Gmail, friggin' calendar, all that crap. I couldn't live without it. I wouldn't know where I was going. Tell me something you've changed your opinion in the last six months. Oh, in my the last six months, shit, that's a lot. Um, I have changed my opinion in the last six months um, of myself. You've changed your opinion of yourself. Yeah. Do you care to elaborate a little bit on that? If it goes too personal, I'm... No, no. I think because, like, I'm going through a lot. I was going through a lot, you know, and, like, I was saying, I'm getting divorced and I've got a startup and all this mm-hmm. shit. So, obviously, I think I was freaking out and I just think didn't think I would 
still want to do it. Mm-hmm. So I think my, I just changed my opinion of myself and my capabilities. And I don't not take myself too seriously and just like getting on with it. Okay, very well. If you just finished college, mm-hmm. you have, let's assume this, you have all your current knowledge, yeah. but you just finished college. Yeah. You have all your current experience, but you just finished college. Yeah. You have 500 bucks with you. What's the first thing you do? What country would I be in? Tell me, you tell me. All right, if I'm in London, I've got 500, I would say pounds. Pounds, quid. What would be the first thing that I would do? Right, well, what we, we are in end of July, coming up to August in London, 500 quid. I'd, um, oh God, that's a hard one. How long does this 500 quid have to last? Wherever you can go back to your parents' place and start learning other stuff. I don't care. I just want to know how your brain works. If I had 500 quid and I was in London right now, I would probably get a food stand. And a make, food stand? Really? Yeah, yeah. We were talking about this yesterday. You know, um, we were talking about it and, you know, like the Mexican hangover cure, mm-hmm. like red ice. I would just sell red ice. <laughs> and I was for 500 quid I could probably make a lot of money if I get the businessmen in the warning probably yeah thank you so much for taking the time well thank you it was really a great great conversation I really had a great time and I hope you had a great time yeah, as well good, thank and you. I really learned a lot and I hope everything goes well with Shoppers and if people want to reach you or reach Shoppers where can they find you um Sarah S-A-R-A at Shoppist app A-P-P dot com okay Well, once again, thank you very much for being here on the Pioneer Show. And thank you. Thank you so much for plugging into this conversation. I truly, truly hope you love this episode as much as I did. Me and Sarah sure had a great talk and I enjoyed every second of it. I must be honest, I had never thought of a fashion designer as an entrepreneur. Like I said, I always put them in this broader category of artist. But clearly the skill that's necessary is also much broader, like the one of a maker, innovator, entrepreneur, the people that we have here on the Pioneers Show. Any information that you might have missed will probably be linked up in the show notes. If you enjoy this conversation, consider subscribing to make sure that this podcast grows and we can get some more people to help everyone be the pioneers of their lives and careers. A big thank you to Sarah Amari and Thibault Flundli, aka DJ Rodia, for the new music of the Pioneers Show. Once again, it was really a great pleasure having you over there. Talk to you later. Bye-bye.